point. We're living in a, you know, a modern age of uh, the new psychedelic renaissance. And I thought, this is this is not real. This is uh, my gosh. I'm on the radio. People hear me. How we give to others and affect others' lives, and uh, what we do with it is important. Don't focus on the rest of the world. Just focus on your own life. And facts can't deal with emotions. It's, it's like apples and oranges. Bronze age and iron age. I all people who would age. You're not picking a president, you're actually <laughs> picking a roommate. Because you don't know what their story is. You don't know what pain they're dealing with. Always part of me wanted an audience. It's naive to think that human beings have stopped evolving. Uh, the people are purple. The, the world is a very rich place if you start exploring. Do, 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 do. Okay, so today I'm going to be presenting on the role of onomatopoeia in language evolution. Okay. So, what is onomatopoeia? Now, it's a word that sounds like the word it's meant to represent. Uh, so, it's, and it also represents iconicity, which is the relationship between the signified and the signifier, which is based on resemblance. Okay sound resemblance, uh, or in a sign language, it could be uh, more of a visual resemblance. Um, in, is it the first word? Were the first words onomatopoeia? That's one thing that is still being studied, and that's my theory here. So here's some, some strange onomatopoeia examples. So there's cliche, which was started in 1825 by some French workers. Uh, uh, something means something unoriginal, so like there's already a mold for it, as in a printing press click, you know, there's already a mold. So uh, there's blimp from around 1915, where Lieutenant A.D. Cunningham of the British Royal Navy Air, Air Service struck so the side of a Royal Airship with his thumb and made a blimp sound. Sneeze from Finislam, Finis. But the S, Fs looked a bit more like S's and it became sneeze. Sneeze. Uh, laugh uh, from Hlechon. Bumblebee, uh, which comes from the Middle English bumble to imitate the buzz. Um, also, also, it's worth mentioning that Dumbledore's name in Harry Potter uh, comes from the idea that he walked around humming a lot. So the the bumble is supposed to kind of sound like ping pong, uh, which is a number of alternatives arose depending on the material of the paddles. It could, it was also whiff waff, pom pom, pim pam. But it, ping pong was what we agreed on. Uh, poop, uh, I guess I have to mention that, uh, the sound of a horn and later came to signify defecation. Buffoon from the Italian buffer for the sound of, of inflating one's Cheeks, a common action of gestures of the time. So, yeah. Owl comes from the pre-Germanic word oua. And uh, marauder comes from the French maraud for a meow, maraud, of a tomcat that's prowling around. So, let's get into some philosophy of language here. So, uh, it's important to some important word meaning distinctions were emphasized by Frege in 1982, where he, where he distinguished between the reference and the sense, like what you're referring to and how you feel about the thing internally. 
there's necessary versus unnecessary conditions, which is that, for example, on you know unnecessary con oh, unnecessary condition would be like uh, the bark of a dog. So, you know, the picture here there's a basinji, which is uh, which is a dog that does not bark. So it's clearly not necessary for a dog to be able to bark. Whereas, for example, a necessary condition would be, you know, a triangle has three sides. And there's family resemblance. So, you know, all dogs generally have a certain look, you know. That's how you classify a dog internally in your schema. We all have mental representations of the same objects, which we refer to in the same way, but we don't know for sure if another person's internal representation is the same as ours. Like it's just some theory of mind. And so according to Wittgenstein, uh, language is the external expression of those internal sensations. Okay, and the discussion of the origin of language come, goes all the way back to 360 BC when Plato wrote his dialogue, The Cratylus. And at one point he defines what is a name? Well, it's an instrument of teaching and distinguishing natures. Um, you know, they have truth by nat nature. All the powers of a god are captured in that name. Uh, only, legis only legislators give names for the best example of the object. Uh, and speakers inform whether the job is done well. So legislators are the rarest of skilled artisans and the name doesn't come from, and the name doesn't come from a faulty broken example of an object. You know, a broke, you know, the name chair doesn't come from an example of a broken chair, it comes from a perfect, perfectly formed chair. Uh, language can be true or false, true form in the, in the mind and with the gods and uh, the rough falsehood is among men, among language. So we have imperfect representations when we're expressing our thoughts. There's always some information loss. Uh, it may, may have been some more, more, some more than human power at work occasionally in giving them names according to Plato. And then he goes into some little etymology. He says stuff like, you know, heroes is only slightly different from arrows. Uh, which is one of the gods, Aries, uh, from his manliness and unchanging nature. Uh, Hermes from the interpreter, messenger, thief, liar, bargainer. Uh, goon, woman, and gown, earth are similar. Thilu, woman, thiel, teat, and, th and uh, are similar. They have a common origin, so words can be based on each other, which is important. And then there's thethelene, which is rain, which you can kind of imagine how that and teeth could be similar. Uh, word meaning um, can be twisted and distorted over the years. Okay. Um, you know, also language, going back a little bit, language can be true or false, you know, smooth and sacred, true form in the mind. Okay. So, and then he goes about, you know, a little bit of, phonetic symbolism, which I'll mention a little bit later. It says like the row sound, the R, uh, means motion, kinesis. You know, words like trembling, strike, crush, bruise, break. Uh, phi, psi, sigma, and C are great, uh, equals great expenditure of, of breath, shivering, shock, seeding. Yeah, lambda, 
which is uh, smooth, smoothness and softness, like level and sleek. Gamma, clammy. The N is inwardness and length. And then alpha is, size, is more associated with size. Uh, there ought to, be, to have been more care taken about, about them when they were named, and perhaps there may have been some more power. Uh, and again, one quote is, the gods must clearly be, supp be supposed to call things by the right and natural names. Uh, so that's called back to, you know, how things sound uh, and object sounds can influence our word for them. Not all names are rightly imposed. Some names are better than others, like any craftsman. Um, they can be, the legislator can be wrong. The namer can be wrong. Just like a picture that imitates can be slightly wrong. But uh, the general character is preserved and the object can still, be, can still be signified even if it's missing a few letters. Nor does the addition or subtraction of a letter make any difference so long as the essence of the thing remains in possession of the name and appears in it. So scleros uh, means hardness, but has wrongly been has a wrongly inserted lambda, which, as I mentioned before, according to Plato, is has to do with smoothness. Uh, yet it's still intelligible, and the meaning is given by custom. So there's so there's a role to play for onomatopoeia and how the thing in infinitic symbolism, and then there's a role to play for custom and more abstract things that change the words. So Aristotle and Aquinas, Thomas Aquinas uh, also mentioned this a little bit and uh, they mentioned that there's three as aspects of language. There's uh, the, the mind, the object, and the word itself. So uh, language equals an attempt to mind read and requires some form of words to express mental representations. Uh, matter without form cannot exist. Languages use matter of material, uh, which is voices, and human intentionality forms them to instances of language. So linguistic signs equal the matter that languages work with, and the forms are the human intentionality that institute them as, a, as signs of language. As rational animals, uh, humans have more than word object rep associations. We can form fictions and counterfactuals. Okay, and then there's a couple of different possibilities here. If you look back at the, at the chart, there's the possibility that the mind comes first and then words, the mind is really the base. Um, that could be described as more of a modernistic view, modernism. Uh, and uh, so language is a mere tool to express the mental representations of sensory experience and reality, but not, of every, but not everything can be perfectly expressed. The other idea is words than mind, which could be postmodernism, where language, language shapes mental experience and we have no neutral access to reality. You know, experience can't, you know, uh, experience can't be what they are with, without language. No, there's no, yeah. There is a problem with that, uh, which is uh, it doesn't explain the searching for word phenomenon. So you have something in your mind, but you can't think exactly of what 
how to express it. Okay, so uh, to understand a sentence, you must grasp it as a whole. And then one very important thought is only thought transcends time. You know, the, the word itself doesn't, but the thought can, and it can get, be passed on between, between people via words. Now for Thomas Aquinas, the mind-object relationship has primacy. Consciousness uh, always uh, conscious of something. Okay. It's the primary relationship of thought and reality, not language. And my, the mind is the direction, um, always, direction always outside of itself. An experience always specified by its objects. Omnia actus specificut ificator ab objecto. Means every act is specified by its object. Right, the Stoics also had some stuff to say. So they had three aspects of language, the sound, the thing that is meant, and the lecton, or the proposition, as we could also call it. It's, that's more, the first two are self-explanatory. The second, the third one is more the sense of the word, the feel. Um, you know, only this has the property of being true or false. And only fluent speakers can really understand it. It's a, a matter of fact related with the event, but not equal to the event. It is not the event, it is simply related with. So to the predicator as something universal on the level of meanings, there corresponds no abstract entity in the real world, but rather a trait in many particular things, which precisely in these particular things of the same kind. There's a universal logos, the structure's reality. This universal logos concretizes itself preeminently in human beings who, whose excelling activity pre presents language as a meaningful expression. Language with its meanings is itself an articulated part of articulated reality, the function of which consists, among other things, in representing the non-linguistic reality. Yeah. Okay, so J.R.R. Tolkien um, did some writing on invented languages. And one particularly interesting part they talked about is phonetic predilection and phonetic symbolism. So um, the predilection is the imitation noise is a sketch or suggestion of original uh, phonetic forms um, to its phonetic predilection of the language. The onomatopoeia is removed yet one stage farther from its echoic basics. One, which is one of the sources of linguistic feeling, meaning the readiness to associate notions with sound groups, or that is to say, to make words. Language without predilection can't imitate in the language the cry of a sheep as ba, besides individual efforts of the animal indicator. And phonetic symbolism uh, means certain combinations of sound are more fitted to express certain notions than others, Certain notions tend to be expressed by sound groups with certain phonetic elements. Now he says that it probably exists, but, because, but they become more vague and less susceptible to analysis and demonstration the more general you make it. It was stronger, but it was weakened as rational and analytic took over as various uh, cultural trends took over. Now, 
the notions became more separated from the symbol. So to know if a word's adoption is from a sense of form and function, you have to know all the, all the words of similar meaning and all the words of similar form. Um, element there's an element in both recreation and an obsolescence and loss obsolescence and loss um, so what is it that makes a language so distinct the greekness of greek the sound of beowulf that makes makes it so unique as well there's individual phonetic predilection as well not not just more collective but on an individual level not different from the system Okay, so it's not the same as that in the system, perhaps less so, so in some educated communities with more knowledge of other systems. Okay, so how does all of this connect with onomatopoeia? Well, if all the words have innate, have an innate nature and are based on other similar words that have similar meanings, and this process goes all the way back thousands of years as language evolved, then there must be some original nature upon which any particular word is based. Humans are imitative of their natural environment, especially of sounds, but also gestures. Uh, but this is the and this is the case in language learning. Therefore, the, the common source must be the sound associated with the subject of the reference, the, with the object, as Aristotle and Aquinas would put it. Uh, the name is not the same as the thing. It, it names, but it imitates it. Just another thing to keep in mind. Um, and if a name is to resemble an object, then the parts of the name, that is the letters, must resemble that object. The part, if the, part, the parts do not resemble that object, therefore, therefore the name does not resemble the object. Okay, so, you know, another interesting thing is, you know, Physics is the work of a physicist and the carpentering that of carpenters and the principle of beauty does, does the work of beauty. The principle of beauty is affirmed in the mind and the mind is called beauty because it does the work that we regard as beautiful. And that beauty is more the, the mental concept that we have of an object and that we try to express that. Okay. Little information about the Campbell's Mona monkeys, where they have some, a little, some onomatopoeia in their words. So the sounds, sounds specific to the object they signify. So crack equals leopard, hawk equals crowned eagle, uh, and sometimes with flying squirrels, which could potentially be confused because as they, as they fly from tree to tree, fly, glide, it could look like a like, like an eagle briefly. And then kraku or hoku are general alarms, usually for predators. And uh, boom equals non-predatory situations like falling trees, intergroup fighting. Two boom calls equals a nearby group. Uh, boom plus boom plus kraku plus kraku equals falling tree branch. And crack plus multiple krakus, leopard. There's a leopard nearby that poses a threat. Okay. 
So speed of, the speed of call delivery is related to the context and call delivery identity in Campbell's monkey mails. There's four different alarm series, the H, K plus, K, and B. The K plus is for the leopards and crowned eagles and falling trees. And K is for leopards specifically. And there's a higher call rate for predators, especially when they're visible, not just audible. And it's preceded by 2B series when there's falling trees. Uh, males uh, differ significantly in the inter-B durations, as well as in the intercall intervals between the B and the subsequent K plus series. Uh, caller identity, uh, levels of threat, mode of detection, and type of anti-predator behavior were reliably linked with difference in call rates. Uh, and there was necessary playback experiments. Experiments uh, have yet to be done, a variety of uh, that is playing uh, recordings of the sounds. A variety of evidence from closely related species suggests that listeners would attend to these features to identify individuals and to draw inferences about external events. And also H is used with higher call rate and counteracting eagles. That is, you know, to defend against eagles. There's a correlation between initial call rate and urgency. There's also been studies on automatopoeia in child development. So more iconic words, words that sound more like the things that they're, that they're imitating are easier to learn. They're learned easier earlier. Uh, and there's better knowledge of them than non-automatopoeia equivalents. Uh, communicative phenomenon in adults those uh, that there's evidence of meaning. Uh, so this is not just for children, but also in adults. Uh, automatopoeia captures the infant's attention more, uh, repeated, repeated more by caregivers and phonologically simple for easier imitation. And there's an advantage of automatopoeia over non-automatopoeic forms. So this, it really allows infants to engage with caregivers in conversation um, to facilitate turn-taking with caretakers, um, illustrating sensory ex experience by drawing on similarities between sounds produced in the vocal tract and sounds from the environment. As Dinkeman said in 2012, um, they are made by the same material as ordinary words and the stuff of, spe the stuff of speech, but they use it in a different way. Okay, the Ikiguzi language. So you can separate the two types of onomatopoeia in this language into more implicit versus explicit onomatopoeia. So the, the explicit would be stuff like uh, Ikegonkoru, which is cr the word for crow, and Okugona for snore, uh, Oko Signora for to urinate the verb and uh, and eke uh, chugu chugu, uh, which is a just a type of verb, which is more that's more the implicit onomatopoeia. 
Okay, so explicit or transparent means imitation from the, from the source, often more of, a, of living things, especially, such as crows. Implicit or metonomical imitate sounds activated in the cognitive ears, human sounds that can fairly represent the object. So uh, the stu study also mentioned a few other a few sounds in other languages, such as Hebrew, this z, uh, z sounds uh, indicate swift movements versus uh, the B, the H, and the L, or more for dismay. Ku in English means to speak softly to someone you love. That's also more of an onomatopoeia, more of kind of the sound of like a dove. Ku. Uh, many, many such words uh, are common across languages with minimal differences, such as ku. Idiophones seem limited in, in morphology. Um, uh, so onomatopoeia completely lexicalized in a language system. So idiophone would be more of, yeah. So like a, just a specific sound within, like within a word versus in, in a formal onomatopoeia would be something like, something that's an actual word like ku or mu or something. Those idiophones are part of a larger word. Um, the Indo Indonesian am translates to yan, hmm, to hmm, so the same. Expressing doubt or hesitation, talk uh, uh, talk to knock knock. Um, for for knock for uh, for knocking with your knuckles, um, hick means yuck. Uh, ex expressing disgust, uh, uh, crack crack, crack crack uh, means just means just crack crack. For breaking into into crack, uh, kraus means crunch. For the crushing of something with teeth. Uh, ploop to plop, the sound of a small object falling into water. So a lot of onomatopoeia can be very, very common, especially the explicit ones. Uh, and also in, in, uh, in Ekeguzi, there's also a metaphorical use for onomatopoeia. When an, when an Emmer speaker prepares to speak, they may be told korora ango toigwe, which means literally, let's now hear you cough. So let's hear you speak. So as if you're clearing your, your, your throat and by coughing, which is something someone might do when they begin to speak. Let's hear you cough. As Dinkelman said, idiophones depict many aspects of sensory scenes beyond sound and automatopoeia make up only a minor portion of most well-described idiophone inventories. Automatopoeia is completely, yeah. Okay, in a multi-dimensional analysis of automatopoeia, a note to make sensory scale from words. So automatopoeia is based either on the imitation of natural sounds like crash or whisper, or a name of the source of the sound like a cuckoo. Cuckoo is the name of the bird, it's also the name of the sound it makes. So when this uh, participants were, were describing a word 
uh, in Japanese for each of the onomatopoeia from the categories of talking, laughing, and crying. You're supposed to identify the different onomatopoeia. So talking was more associated with voice clearness. Uh, and 16 of those words from talking were able to be identified on this 2D map. And as you can see, the 16 here were, plot, were plotted into different groups. Uh, laughing, 11 were, were correctly grouped, were correctly put onto a map and identified within different groups. And crying, uh, 14 of them. So, so basically, they were correctly able to identify automatopoeia out of hundreds that they were looking through. Okay, so in, in conclusion, you know, um, Socrates, Aquinas, Tolkien um, described that words have innate natures that can be sensed perfectly. Words, words are, or the objects that they're describing have in certain natures that can be sensed perfectly in the mind, but they're expressed with flaws. You know, uh, word language is not perfect and there's information loss. And so it can be expressed with flaws and falsehoods and misunderstandings. Also, while, while words resemble their objects at the start, humans can't express things perfectly and convention and custom can be distorted, uh, can distort these words to potentially resemble less and less, uh, especially with the wrong insertion of certain letters, which can create a lot of noise and cover up the, the, the resemblance, the, the original underlying automatopoeia and phonetic symbolism. Um, name, names to an extent cannot be trusted as they are in constant flux. So even though they may be based on an original sound, those words can change. Um, and so as we, as we saw before, for example, the word owl started with uwa, which is more of a automatopoeia, but it kind of changed and became owl, which it's based on an original, on, on an echoic form but through the years, it resembled less and less of its origin. So in constant flux, unlike beauty and knowledge, which are, which are kept directly in the mind, which they represent, and those are necessarily static. Those are more objective. And so there's more in common amongst explicit than implicit onomatopoeia. And by more in common, I mean amongst all the world languages, much more in common there. Whereas implicit onomatopoeia is a little more subjective, more open to, to interpretation, but there could still be an element of, of phonetic symbolism. So, and just a, another little bit of information. So Plato describes how to learn about an object without the name, uh, which is the true and natural way. So you can learn through their affinities compared to their similar objects and to themselves. So if you don't, if you don't know the, the name, uh, what, what, is, what is other and different from them must be distinct from them. 
and then the knowledge should come from the objects themselves and not from the names. Because some of these names can become distorted. Okay, and just a couple quotes to leave you with here. So we should imitate the nature of the thing. The elevation of our hands to the heaven should mean lightness and upwardness, heaviness and downwardness would be expressed by letting them drop to the ground. If we were describing the running of a horse or any other animal, we should make our bodies and their gestures as like as we could to them. And when we want to express ourselves either with the voice or the tongue or the mouth, the expression is simply their imitation of that which we want to express. I suppose you mean to say, Cradleus, that as the name is, so also is the thing, and that he who also knows the one will also know the other, because they are similars, and all similars fall under the same act of, or science. And therefore, you would say that he who knows name will also be know things. Well, but do you not see, Cradleus, that he who follows names in the search of other things and analyzes their meaning is in great danger of being deceived. And here's some references. And some more, some more resources. Okay, thank you. Point Counterpoint is a Chris Wright production produced by me, Chris Wright, your host, director, and producer of this podcast. Also, a huge thanks to Anchor for making this show possible. If you liked this episode, make sure to share it with your friends and, so and on social media and give us five stars on Apple Podcasts if that's where you listen. Peace. Ciao.